0: Welcome to the T's and C's,
1: T and Chantel,
0: also known as the terms and conditions.
1: Welcome to a, another episode of Surviving Society's weekly COVID 19 reflection. This is our penultimate episode, and we are really, really excited to be joined by one of our favourite alumni, Professor Danny Dorlin. Hi, Danny.
2: Hi there, thanks for having me
1: again. We love having Danny on because he brings the facts, but also he brings the optimism. He <laughs> always brings us facts coupled with hope. So usually we're talking about issues of race and class, but Danny brings the numbers, but also tells us about how things can get better. Danny, thank you for coming on. What is happening? When I'm thinking about your scholarship, Danny, and thinking about this moment, right... I'm thinking about, about your book, Royal Britannia, and I'm also thinking about your book, Slow Down, and how these sort of like are crashing together during this moment.
2: Yeah, they are. I mean, Royal Britannia, you know, the subtitle From Brexit to the End of Empire. And um, my really slow moving university has finally agreed it will probably take the statue of the biggest bigot in Britain down from a wall. Seems like a small thing, but We've been trying to ha- get it to happen for decades and decades.
1: Oh, Danny, can you give the listeners a bit of context to that? Which university is this we're talking about? And which bigots <laughs> are we talking about
2: so, here? <laughs> uh, U- university of Oxford, on the high street of Oxford, the main street, if you're local, you go into town on, the highest statue on the high street is a statue of Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes was one of the worst bigots in the British Empire, responsible for tens of thousands of deaths, absolute brutality. And the highest statue is a statue put up by the university, by one of its colleges, Oriel, with an inscription underneath it about the magnificent roads. Only three weeks ago, finally, the governing body were forced, forced to say they would probably take it down. Now, if you try to imagine any school in the country, any school, having a statue of a racist bigot on its outer wall overlooking the street, it just... wait. Anyway, anyway... It's a big step for my university. They found it hard to do, which kind of shows you the kind of problems we've got. You know, I've been working on evidence that the economy and the world is slowing down. And then bang, we get a pandemic of a kind we haven't had for 50 years. And we're in the biggest slowdown probably ever in economic history of human beings. There's never been anything like this. You know, There's there's been wars before, but that's a conversion to other activity. But simply just stopping what you're doing you have to go back a long. you've got to go back centuries and pandemics that were far worse than this have killed many many times more people uh, to see something like this happen. so all kinds of things are going on which a year ago if you'd said oh this to happen people would say oh don't be so stupid oh if you get a pandemic disease it'll be like the last ones uh, there was one in 1968 one in 57 one in 1951 uh, there hasn't been anything like that imagine <laughs> Routinely getting discussions in the media every day about how racist British society is, how the Victorians put up all these statues of people who it turns out are terrible, and it took us so long, most of us so long to notice. And again, if you described a year ago, if you said a year ago, we'll have a summer, the summer of 2020, in which people slowly begin to realise just how much is so shameful that we've been celebrating. And and it's not an argument, this isn't a discussion. There isn't a sensible conversation to be had between somebody who wants to keep the racist stuff and somebody who doesn't. It's a revelation, that's what's going on. It's a revelation to people who just didn't know. I'm watching the bigots, they'll come back again, but at the moment I'm watching the bigots just shut up. It may be temporarily they feel they've lost, but how do you argue for keeping something embarrassing up by oh you can't airbrush history without making yourself look intensely stupid and, and that's the point I think we're at in the summer of 2020.
1: There's a couple of things obviously that you've spoken about there Danny the the unprecedented economic slowdown and people having this revelation about Britain being built on slavery, empire and colonialism. Mike, The first point of call that I sort of wanted to think about was the economic slowdown and sort of thinking about this from my lived experience, only being 27. So I remember very distinctly the credit crunch and the recession. Because I remember us not having enough food and basically everyone in my family being made redundant. And what's really interesting about that is obviously that was only between sort of like 2006, 2010. It's such a distinct memory that I have of poverty. That in itself isn't going to map onto how badly things are going to be this time around. Uh,
2: yes, this is uh, worse. This is going to be worse than that, at least worse initially. That there comes a point when it's so bad that it may not be possible to do what we did in, after the 2008 banking crash and basically leave people to think and swim. The Funded Life Foundation are doing a brilliant job every month of producing the results of a detailed survey on people's living conditions in Britain. And the one I saw most recently was another 3 million people tipped into destitution in the last four weeks. People are using up what little savings they've got. Several million self-employed people are not covered by any government scheme and can't work. People are discovering how bad universal credit is, not just the delays, but how critical the amount of money is. People are realising that so many of them have been furloughed and not going to be taken back. The government are offering a £1,000 to every business who takes back each of their furloughed workers Uh, and there's £9 in total. It's we're we're teetering. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you in July, and um, people are just about to try and go on holiday before we this situation uh, begins. It's because partly the way that we were living before was not sustainable, but also once the confidence goes, you don't go and buy things you don't need. You don't go and have a meal in a restaurant if you worry that you won't have enough money at Christmas. Let alone, of course. The fact it slightly increases your chances of getting a disease that might leave you breathless and dying on a ventilator. You know, the kind of that balancing act of all. Oh, should we go and have a chicken <laughs> or not? With <laughs> that kind of incentive. Does it work? Now, the reason I'm not completely gloomy about this is that nobody can blame individuals for this situation. Nobody can say to anybody, you didn't work hard enough. I mean, a pandemic came along and we were a weak economy. And at some point, And what government has actually tried to avoid is people saying, you've got to look after us. You you can't let me starve. You can't let us be thrown out because we can't pay the rent. There are hundreds of thousands of us. And that's that's where we're going into in the autumn. Um, Universities, you know, news came out again this week. 13 may go bust by Christmas. That's a kind of made up number. Could be 13, could be less, could be more. Who knows? Other news this week. I mean, this is incredible news. If you're coming to Britain from the European Union and you want to go to a university in Britain, well, A, you have to pay overseas fees next year. But you'll also have to pay for a visa. I've just seen the regulations. Oh, and you have to pay £470 for every year uh, because that'll be your health insurance cost, and you've got to pay that £470 times free up front. So there ain't going to be nobody coming from the mainland of Europe, is there? And I could go on and on. You know, it's... Uh, it's a kind of things falling apart. You know, you've got to go right back to 1939 to find another year in which to change from the beginning of that year and through. Or even I'd go earlier back to 1913, um, just before the First World War. Not a war, but a sense that everything is so likely to be so different that if we were to talk a year from now, July 2021, you know, it'd probably get a lot of things wrong, but it won't be the same. Uh, we won't be living in the same. Kind of place, the same kind of country anymore, hopefully a better one, certainly a poorer one, hopefully with disease well under control, but hopefully a more equal society than the one we're in now.
0: going back to whats one, one of the things you just said, Danny just now like like the individual's not to blame, and certainly over the last 40, 40 years it's been the emphasis has been on the individual neoliberalism's emphasized individualism to the degree. Is it time for government to come back? Is it saying that government is a good thing?
2: Government's the only thing we've got. Uh, And if you look around the world at who's coping and who isn't, those countries with the worst governments, Brazil, the United States, and to a lesser extent, us, are doing worse. Those countries which have got better governments in Europe, but also in the Far East, in Japan and China, are doing much better. And a government which simply allows the billionaires to take what they want, which is ruled by the Friends of Billionaires, they're the ones in which the number of deaths from COVID have been highest. They're the governments which have presided over the biggest economic crashes of all. You need better government, but you also don't need people working as hard as they've been working. We were producing far too much stuff that we didn't need. We were running economies that were in completely unecological. We we don't need to return to people working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Could return to people working 20, 25. There's a campaign for. A 30 hour week. There was one before. It went through, um, went through, I think, the Senate in the United States in the 1930s, a bill for a 30 hour week. You've got to go back to the 30s, by the way, to the last time that things were this bad in America. In the 1930s, they had 14 million unemployed at the point they stopped counting the unemployment statistics because they sacked the people who did the counting. Uh, the USA is heading, heading towards that. So, no, we certainly need government back. You can't do this without government. You can't work out how to ensure that people have enough money, don't have to be scared about lack of food. You can't control landlords without government. Landlords will kick people out of their homes unless the government stops them doing that. But the other thing, and the really kind of quite interesting, if you like a little bit scary thing, is that if you look at the actions of the British government over the last few weeks, they are clearly afraid of what happens if we do have four or five million people, mainly young, unemployed. They are spending, they announced this week, if I talked to you, another 30 billion on top of 160 billion because they're worried about riots. You know, I would say they're not particularly nice people, so why are they doing it? It's because they're worried about the rioting that would occur if you had so many young people with clearly nothing to do. So they're trying to buy their way out of that. And by the way, the last thing I should throw out is these sums of money. Whenever you look at the 130 billion or 30 billion, You've got to remember that high-speed two costs £100 Although, yeah, although it sounds like a lot, it's very easy to be impressed when government says a £1 billion. You've got to remember high-speed two, £100 You could get rid of high-speed two, have slight pay reductions for people at the top of society, and we could all be living a very, very easy life. But that isn't imaginable. They will tell you, oh, that's impossible. Just like they would have told you that everything that's been done since COVID arrived was impossible, but actually happened.
1: So a couple of weeks ago we had Paulette Williams um, on the podcast and we were talking about like education policy specifically it does count for government as well, how quickly things can actually happen and how quickly things can change and how much governments have been gaslighting us basically for decades telling us that change is slow they can't do this they can't do that and actually it just comes down to the one of government in power to change things and the majority of them don't want to change things because it doesn't it doesn't benefit their mates their class of people but now like the way we're seeing how much things can change so quickly like it does give me optimism because as you say like if there's going to be this many young people unemployed in particular then we are going to come out on the streets. We're going to continue to come out on the streets because this is a choice. We don't. It doesn't have to be like this.
2: Yeah. Some will come out on the streets. More will hopefully simply become political because what else can you do? And we'll vote. Uh, you know, example, you only need a slight increase in the proportion of people under 40 to vote. Almost nobody under 40 votes Conservative. Almost nobody.
1: But I love Danny's election facts because I love these because they're so important. Like, the... Yeah. How important thinking about who actually votes and who controls who ends up being in power those people that are above 40 yeah or the 60, yeah
2: and you have five. to look at who's in power you know they really are a weird set connected to the very richest it's the kind of the very last of the elite holding holding on um you know it's the head boy of this particular public boarding school not any old boarding school the most expensive ones. so it feels like a, but i'll give you a trivial idea that example of things changing my university for centuries has made people go into what are called the exam schools wearing a special gown and outfit and do their exams with, with a pen and paper of course they couldn't do it do this this year for the first time ever so they sat at home and did them on the computers it was far better you could actually read what the students had written and they weren't traumatized <laughs> by, by being made to go into this space and, and my colleagues i could you know my colleagues swore. That we're never going to go back. And also when you look at it, it was a few old conservatives thick in the muds, who actually, and only a tiny number who liked the old ways, who, who were managing to keep it. it. It requires a tiny number of people with a very low amount of imagination to stop things changing. Not a big group, it was a small group, Uh, It was a small group who supported that statue that we began talking. You know, it's not a large number of people who feel that statues of bigots are really important to them. It's a tiny, it's a tiny small group. When they begin to go, that small group begins to shut up. Fascinating to see how many aspects of our society were only there because a little group of people thought it was in their interest to keep things that that way. So it's more movable than we often thought. Things can move faster than you know, I thought felt possible, and I'm an optimist.
0: So I have tried to think of like European terms, like so from like the kind of shift from the French Revolution and after that kind of a small group of elite and this massive grandswell, and it's a change that you can never go back to. Yeah, it's similar to like that in those kind of terms. So you have like punctuations in European history of these kind of movements happened.
2: Yeah, it, it, I feel that that's the kind of thing going on. It doesn't mean you're going to, you're going to get utopia around the corner. No, like no, you know, the French no. Revolution, Britain's bigoted stupid history that we were all taught at school that's over that cat's out of the bag in, in a matter of a few weeks it was a few weeks from, from the death of, of one man in the United States through to you know I listened this morning at nine o'clock on Radio 4 to discussion amongst four people about British history and Radio 4 had decided not to put a bigger on so all four of them were talking about how we need to teach our history differently. And, you know, Radio 4 is kind of like the Conservative Party on radio. That's what it is. It's not. <laughs> um, the fact that they didn't even have one person defending the old ways That just shows you that's over. And they were talking a lot about Germany after 1945. And that was the analogy being used. How did Germans work out how to teach their history better after 1945? This is a post-1945 moment for the British. You know, the realisation... Of- That's
1: quite exciting. I mean, I've been feeling pretty depressed recently, but that kind of, <laughs> kind of analogy, like, thinking about this is our...
0: Being the obfuscation. Yeah,
1: yeah. Our, our own version of that is really powerful. <laughs> but equally, it is a bit frustrating, Danny. Like, yeah. I, I have to sort of be the voice of, of some of our listeners thinking about these things as, why now? Like, why Why is this awakening happening now? Why are you listening now? So many people, like yourself included, have done, like, decades of roadshows telling people about what is actually happening and what our society is and how it's come about. Like, why now do they care? And also, it it's all about reconciliation with your choosing to care now. And there was actually capital in not caring. But maybe your capital in not caring about structural racism, for example, isn't isn't going to afford you as much as it did before.
2: Oh, yeah. No, 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 no I would agree with you. I mean, I, I published something today uh, about the Rose Statue and about how we have almost 40 heads of colleges at Oxford. Not one of them publicly spoke out against the Statue being there until after the day when the college agreed it will probably come down.
1: <laughs> it's annoying. It is annoying. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, and, and since the demonstrations began a few years ago, we've had over 100 heads of colleges, including many supposedly famous liberals, not one of whom spoke out against the actually publicly because mm-hmm. the code of silence was so strong. And now, of course, you won't find a single one who will speak in favour of it publicly. That's always there. I mean, if you take something very different, if you, if you take people's right to be gay and how that altered yeah. in the 1990s, that switched from it being oh, this is something a few people do and we won't talk about it, we won't worry about the prejudice too much. Two, stop being prejudiced. It wasn't that most of the population dramatically changed their view or had a view. It was that a sea change occurred at a particular time. If I'm right, you know, if this is the sea change, then the, the pressure was building up, the thing was ready to snap, the anger had increased enough amongst people in hindsight uh, but we don't have a way of, of measuring um, b- beforehand that uh, and quite why why now and it's it's unlikely the pandemic isn't related it, it it's just unlikely given the timing that this would have happened if there hadn't been a pandemic it, i think the sense of not knowing quite where we're heading the sense that those in charge are not necessarily in charge has helped quite a lot with, with people just saying that's got to go. And, and again, coincidence, I mean, mm-hmm. the last thing I'll say about this statue in Oxford, uh, there are no tourists in Oxford now, and there are no students. And we had two demonstrations against the statue and almost all the people demonstrating were local. And most of the people at the front were black. Yeah, so it's, it's local protesters in the city, it's the people who clean the hospitals and the people who clean the colleges have been protesting against the statue of a racist. The normal argument, to defend the statue, oh this is utopian students, what do they know? That doesn't work when your locals during a pandemic have marched up the high street to campaign. That wouldn't have happened without the pandemic and if you look at Bristol there wouldn't have been so many people around and again it was local. You know, As much as I like student politics there's something quite genuine about the fact in both these cases we know because of the pandemic these were local people. You can't claim this is some middle-class yeah. group of agitators. It wasn't. These are local people in their local towns who've had enough of something.
1: Where we're sort of wary a little bit about these discussions about how attitudes change is thinking about, for example, last week, we're recording this on the 8th of July now, David Starkey was (laughs) racist as per, he's been racist for a long time. Like, I think Actually watching his interview on Newsnight in 2011 was one of the first times that I became political in my views. Like, I remember that was the first time I really noticed how mainstream racism was as a young person. But anyway, I digress. Seeing the liberal reactionary response to David Starkey... For people like me and Tiso, who are critically engaged with how racism is operationalised within the mainstream, was quite disturbing to see. It's not that we don't feel like he should have all his accolades taken away from him. Mm. It's about people trying, people villainising him as something that's separate from themselves. So what David Starkey said, a lot of people, liberal people think that sort of Mm. thing and will talk that way about black people. And that's, and that's sort of where, whether it's when we think about how like Nick Griffin's been positioned or Nigel Farage has been positioned over the years. When Mm. we characterize these people as quote unquote racist, it kind of takes away from the fact that they're actually a product of society. And, what i felt like we were starting to see after black lives matter more recently is people realizing that they're part of that but then actually seeing that reaction to david starkey made me think mm, you guys maybe haven't learned yet that he's actually he's part of you he's part yeah. of our society
2: yeah yeah no no i mean 30 percent of people voted for nigel Farage's brexit party last year 30 exactly. percent of, of the electorate in the european elections We're quite happy with nigel the David Starkey thing, I mean, I think the thing I learned from that, and I know I should have known this before, but he was hacked from so many things so quickly. He obviously loved being on like the, the trust of the Mary Rose board, and all yeah. of them issued a statement that said, um, David has offered his resignation and we have accepted it. But there were so many of them that it wasn't possible. And I never realized when I'm 52 years old that the phrase, he has offered his resignation doesn't mean anything of the kind. It means we've sacked him. And oh. that, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, because it was too many. He was sacked from everything yeah, within a, a matter of a couple of hours. But it was people trying to distance themselves so it's not to be asked questions. Why on earth did you have him on your board in the first place?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And just because he's been caught saying it doesn't mean that you don't have other people within your organisation that don't think that same thing. I mean, don't get me wrong thisness, I am not defending David Starkey. Like, let's yeah. be clear. Uh, but it was really unsettling, wasn't it, T? Like, just seeing all the David Sarkin removed from this, David Sarkin removed from that, and it's like...
2: Yeah. Or it's, it's as if we could suddenly be clean ourselves. We're the same with Nigel Farage at the moment. You know, the only time that Nigel Farage has been on the media for the last month is when he appeared in a pub and people worked out he'd very probably broken the quarantine laws.
0: Yeah, and that was it. Yeah.
2: The BBC, which were putting Nigel Farage on two or three times a week, for month after month, don't anymore. And yes, you know, you could get worried. Well, to go back to 1945, you could say your worst SS officers are no longer allowed into society. But you say that everybody else in Germany is fine. Like, you know, but that's uh, Radio 4 program I was listening to today. was very interesting on this. It, it said, and the same question you were asking about speed came up. And I've forgotten who the speaker was, but she said, look, it took years and years in Germany. She said, there's Willy Brandt who said, please forgive us, we did something awful shortly after 1945. But the bulk of Germans didn't. And it's the same in Britain. You're you're not going to get a sudden change. And if you like, we've got, I mean, you might hate this analogy, but we've got the equivalent of the Nuremberg trials going on now. We're not hanging them, but we're sacking people who were overtly racist from their positions. Taking the analogy of Germany, if we're on that track now, and you will see this. There was a letter published in, was it Harper's Magazine, by a load of liberals terribly upset that they couldn't do free speech, which basically meant they they get called out now if they're bigoted. Now, they're your middle of the road people. And the fact that they're edgy, and the fact their letter's backfired on them, and the fact that people are asking to have their names taken off the letter. I, I could be wrong, but it's all going in the right direction right now, and it hasn't gone in this direction for most of my life. Tiny little bit of celebration might might be worthwhile. Along, yeah.
0: I think it's going in the right direction, and like like you said, anyway, about Winnie Brandt in Germany saying it's going to take a long time. But for Black people, this it can't go fast enough. Like I've been waiting, and uh, we have there's an echo with the past. The thing that's going on it echoes to the past, and we've been waiting for this moment since we, since we first encountered these. That we've been waiting for this moment, and at certain periods in time in history. It's been punctuated with yes, we we are. We, this thing's moving. But yeah. it's still not moving fast enough. So now everyone else is catching up, and I'm like, I'm I'm doing a PhD, and you start doing GCSEs. That's what it feels like, and I'm waiting yeah. for you to catch up. The frustration it feels, it's like a parent teaching a child to catch up, but you can't catch up fast enough. And and but unfortunately, in this relationship, the child has all the power, and I'm like saying to you, like, come on, please, like I'm waiting for you to grow up and like treat me as an adult. And that's the frustration that we feel like right now. We've had all the same information but just the fact there is of positionality is that i had that critical gaze i was looking Mm -hmm. at you and saying this is wrong and you're saying well not really not really (laughs) not really (laughs) and i'm like i'm saying no it's definitely wrong i've got the answers here and you're saying no and it's it's that frustration that Mm -hmm. people feel as well some of our listeners feels and some of my friends are thinking like come on like to me this is obvious i've looked at your history from A levels, we sat there and we sat there and we've had to sit in discussions about the Enlightenment, we've had to sit discussions about the industrial I've had to learn your history intricately, had to learn the culture intricately, to repeat it at exams, for coursework, for whatever. And so when I sit back and talk to people and I say, Well, what do you know? I remember speaking to some of my Polish friends and saying to them, so, do you realise your country is wiped off the map three times, but yet you're scared of me and I've never invaded your country? Do you understand that? And they're like, I never knew that. I'm like, how don't you know? How do you not know? Like this stuff is always there. And I get the idea of disenchantment, the idea that once you strip that magic away, you see what it is, but we sit in the same lessons. I've learned the same things for whatever reason, be it positionality, be it power, be it whatever it is, you haven't taken that extra step. And that frustration we feel to me right now in this, at this moment, it's distracting because I'm having to give you another history lesson. I'm like, but don't you know that about what you don't understand the wall street crash. You don't understand the stock market crash. You don't understand all these things. I'm like, you were in the same class as me. We've got the same books.
2: I wondered how much the frustration is a worry that this is just temporary, that this will just be this summer, this, this weird period where nobody's been allowed to get out of their house and so on. And normally after pandemics, things go back to almost complete normal two years later, that they did after the 68 flu, they did after 57 and 51. Frustration is a fear of, of it not continuing. The kind of thing... That makes me optimistic to return to my students uh my students are not particularly let's say um revolutionary students you don't get loads of a's and a stars at gcse and get a star a star a uh, if you are going out on the barricades you are swap and they're the ones who come to oxford also i work in the only large department in the university without a single black student okay so this is one of the least if you like, in one way, enlightened departments. Two weeks ago, 100 of the undergraduates in my department signed a letter demanding that the curriculum be changed, that they're being taught. And they didn't just sign that letter. They also included a photograph and picture of every single person we'd recommended that they read. So it, was <laughs> it, so it was obvious to us, and this is their lecturers, that they were almost all white. And It's
1: there. The young
2: people—they're not buying. They're not about. If this is happening with the students that I have, you know, out, outside there, one way in which you engage or, or make younger people more radical is you take away the certainty of the future from them. Uh, and we saw this with wars, we see it with recessions. I think that might be why something big could be happening. When you can tell young people, just keep your nose clean, behave well, and you'll have an okay life, you can get them to shut up about other things. But when you take away that kind of security, asking them to carry on or keep quiet to the bigoted views of their parents and grandparents uh, becomes harder to sustain. But we should just meet in July 2021 and see
1: no. <laughs> we will Danny, we will we'll be we bringing obviously we'll bring you back yeah. on for the analysis of it but yeah, yeah Danny thank you so much for joining Danny, us thank and you thanks always, that, Danny. Always, always always a pleasure to have you on Danny yeah listeners thank you for staying with us we'll have one more episode of the reflection out for you next week take care bye